So about a month ago, we did a story on the Russia and Ukraine situation. And based on everything that was going on at the time, we just published, I think, about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago. And obviously, everybody knows, even paying attention to the news, that Russia went and invaded. And I believe at the time, like a lot of people believe, that there wasn't going to be an invasion. And Biden and everybody else was playing this up because it was a great way to get the attention off the fact that his polls are, I think he's now somewhere around 63, 64% disapproval, which is just absolutely atrocious. And it did get everybody's attention off the fact that they're not happy with him. But the reality is Russia invaded Ukraine a few days ago, and there is an ongoing war there. And to me, what I find interesting is that this could have been something that could have been avoided. And the thing is that when you back somebody into a corner, you give them no off ramp. If you look at how things started a month ago, it's like everybody in the West was basically back and Putin in the corner. And if you back a scared and angry dog into a corner, it's going to attack. And weakness invites aggression. And the fact that what happened with Afghanistan and our train wreck of a withdrawal from there, and the fact that it's well known that our president is in significant public, you know, mental decline, what better time for Russia to do an invasion? Because when they took Crimea, Obama was back in office. And it was interesting, there was a report that came out that when Trump was in office, he told Xi Jinping that if they moved on Taiwan, he would destroy Beijing. And he told Putin that if they invaded the Ukraine, he would destroy Moscow and I think, uh, or St. Petersburg. I think he, he talked about all those, you know, the minarets that are in, um, you know, the, the famous places in Russia. And supposedly they're they're both of them are kind of taken aback, but they're like, oh, he Trump doesn't really mean that. But what's interesting is when Reagan was in office, Gorbachev, what was funny is years later, he was like he thought Reagan was nuts, that Reagan would literally launch an offensive strike, first strike against Russia, or the so back then what was known as the Soviet Union. And so that when you're dealing with somebody who's a rational adversary, if they really believe that you're nuts and you'll go all in, that tends to cause them to pause. And so what's been going on these last several months, especially with Taiwan, is the Chinese military jets have been flying and violating Taiwanese space. And it was, it's obviously going to continue because there's what is Joe Biden going to do? I mean, the guy's like not even lucid half the time. But so I had predicted that there was going to be no invasion and I was totally wrong. But into my defense, one of the things that Barack Obama said or is reported to have said, which was in the, in the media widely reported years ago, was that never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to, to fuck things up. And like I said, when we first filmed and talked about it, it really seemed like he was blustering and he was looking for a negotiation. And I mean, at the end of the day, they have invaded. And the you know, as we're filming this, the attack 
is still ongoing. So we're going to go through some of the bullet points on things that have happened. So on the 24th of February, Russia launched their invasion of Ukraine. This is from um, Wikipedia. has got a nice chronological order of some of the events that have happened. So they were obviously they were building up at the time when we were discussing this a month ago and you position your forces. And if you don't get what you want, obviously he, and what's interesting also is that a lot of people in St. Petersburg and Moscow were out in the streets, these Russian citizens, there was a lot of them. There were thousands of them in the streets and they didn't want anything to do with the war. Cause a lot of the Russians have family that, that live in Ukraine. Cause they all used to be part of the Soviet union back in the day. So chunky. What, yes. are you, what are your thoughts? So how they initially started launching the missiles at um, military kind of base, probably air defenses, um, strategic locations. Yeah. First thing is you want but, to take out the air defenses because then you want to be able to, and then obviously their air force, you want to be able to control the airspace. Cause if you can control the airspace, like we did, in Iraq, Afghanistan, even Syria, then you don't have to worry about your planes getting shot down, especially your big um, planes that are carrying troops or supplies of things that planes that don't have any kind of offensive or defensive weapons on them. And they, but they were unsuccessful at taking out all of their air defenses. And so some of them were able to down some Russian planes. There's a bunch of helicopters have been shot down. Some other planes. There was, and then going back to the, the when the missiles first started, I've been seeing a lot of videos online of it not really hitting. It also hitting like civilian centers as well too. So I don't know if that's the accuracy of the missiles or that's more intended on purpose. Yeah, I don't really missiles know. If it's, are, it's one of the two. I don't really know for sure. Well, their cruise missiles are not really because I, I I remember um, years ago. I think it was when they first started attacking different targets, maybe even Syria, I think. And they were talking about the their version of the cruise missile that was launched. A lot of them just petered out and then crashed in the in the desert. Like a, a significant amount of them. So it's well known that their missiles aren't as accurate as ours are. So it would make sense that some of them go off go off course and hit an apartment building by accident, or I mean, it's possible it's on purpose. Maybe they were trying to get at somebody that they knew lived in a certain building and they don't care if they kill a bunch of civilians, if it's a high enough value target for them. I mean, honestly, when you look at the Iraq or the Gulf Wars, all of them, it's like, we did the same thing. You know, our, yeah. our missiles missed the target sometimes bomb civilian targets. And it's like, that's war. That, that shit is going to happen. A lot of the drone strikes. Yeah. Hit, civilians all the time you can see it's like really, we, were, really we were dipping out of uh, afghanistan supposedly it was revenge for the suicide bombing that that blew up killed i think it was 13 of our troops that were guarding the airport and then so they were watching drone footage of a guy was carrying these big um jugs around and I think there were water jugs, but it was a guy just bringing stuff home to his family. And so they're watching in drones they're like, oh, well, that's got to be the Al Qaeda person. So they launched a missile and they killed this guy and all of his kids. And I think some of his neighbors and his family that were 
he just killed a uh, you know a family and that particular guy had, had worked for the americans when we were there and so we ended up basically killing one of our allies by accident and uh, the military was just like just shrugged their shoulders but that's that's what happens in war civilians end up end up dying so yeah, and then after after all the missiles got launched the next day, the, really the troops started massively pouring in from all full scale evasion. Something we haven't seen in Europe on this kind of scale since I want to say around since World War II, because before that maybe maybe when the Czechs, um, but that was more of a civil war, so it doesn't really count. I'd say. And then you have all the stuff that happened in the nineties in the Balkans. Yeah. But like at this scale, I don't think it's happened since World War II. Which so is- one of the things I thought was interesting is that uh, Russia had had brought in some helicopter-borne troops and they captured Antonov Airport. But then a Ukrainian counteroffensive successfully recaptured the airport and totally destroyed the landing force. And that was that, that you know I was reading a guy who was in the I think it was former Air Force. Um, he had a good, good Twitter thread and he was talking about that and that that's part of the problem when you don't control the air, you don't control the air in the airport. You can't bring in these other assets because those particular aircraft are too vulnerable. And so these guys basically got cut off and didn't have the numbers, the ammunition. And eventually the Ukrainians were able to retake the airport. And in modern where air support superiority is such an important factor. It's just a huge it has such a big swing on the scale of the whole war. It was like the German Blitzkrieg in World War II, is they had air superiority, and so they bombed the crap out of their adversary, and they're shell shocked, and then you get the um, the tanks and the troops come rolling in behind them after you've softened them up. And Russia and has a lot. That of was tanks. the first time that had ever been done. The Blitzkrieg, you know, they even put on their. Um, their dive bomber planes, they had these little um, devices. It was kind of like, it was like a siren almost. And so when the thing would dive, the air going through the little siren would cre- create this shrieking noise. It would yeah. just scare the crap out of everybody on the ground. So you would hear this as this thing's coming down and then you would hear the explosion. So it was, it was also, there was a mental con- component a psychological component to that particular weapon platform and that this invasion strategy that russia is doing between bomb doing a lot of bombs taking out the strategic things and then kind of rushing with all the tanks and armor is really um works well with their military doctrine that's why they're doing it because that's just what they've been stockpiling since the cold war is missiles and tanks and they've definitely dropped their tank supplies i think they've actually have their tanks because the maintenance of it was very expensive. That's the thing that I also kind of find interesting because it, it looking t- timing wise, why is he doing this now? I think a part of it is um, they have so much, a lot of their money and assets tied up with the military that's not being used. So they rather just kind of use the assets and lose it doing a war or something instead of it just uh, rusting away in a sh- uh, like a shack and having to maintain it. So I think from a financial aspect, that also plays into it a little bit, but I think there's obviously bigger reasons. I think that just helps out a little bit. I think you've been sniffing a little too much glue. No, it makes sense. It does. like Because <laughs> they'd rather just use the tanks and either lose lose them instead of lose them to rust in time. Yeah, you got to understand the value for they've it. got, you know, 
when parents start getting notification that their sons have been killed in war, and the more that happens, that starts to change public opinion. And there were thousands of people in the streets, and I don't think Putin expected his own citizens to react that way. And he also, from what I read, it's like he seemed like he was going to be a lot more successful and that the Ukrainian military would just basically fold and roll over. And the thing you got to keep in mind is our troops have been training and equipping them for decades. And at the time that we were originally talking about all this, um, back when we did that, that first video, I was looking cause you know, they, people go online and you can have those maps of the air traffic and it just showed the flight plans of these, uh, support or transport planes flying from Europe to Ukraine, bringing the, um, the Javelin. So for those of you who don't know, the Javelin missile is about $80,000. It's a, like an anti-tank weapon and We've used them to great effect, especially over the last 20 years, and perfected that weapons platform. And it's extremely accurate to take out pretty much any kind of vehicle or armor that you want because the missile shoots up in the air and it comes down on top where the armor tends to be thin on the top of the vehicle. And you know, not only destroys the vehicle, but it destroys anybody that's inside the vehicle. And so I don't know how, how many of these, I think we probably shipped in thousands of them or our allies did were this in the weeks leading up to the war. And so those have been distributed amongst the Ukrainian military who understands how to use that platform. Cause again, they've been training with our guys for decades. And so, and all it takes is, is you got usually two guys and can be hiding out in the bushes somewhere in the forest. And as a column comes by, you just fire and maneuver, shoot one off and hightail it out of there, reposition somewhere else. And while they're trying to figure out what's happened, you hit them from an, another angle and blow up another one of those. And you stop a couple of them in the front column and now you got a roadblock and everybody behind them can't, can't get by. And they're trying to evac their wounded and, and their dead comrades out of there. And, and then you can, envelop them from the sides and rake them with machine gun fire or continue to hit them and just pick them off. Like, you know, I've, I've read some of the numbers on the tanks and the armored vehicles that it's, you know, they're taking pretty high casualties because of that. So the Russian forces captured Chernobyl nuclear power plant, the one that had the meltdown in the 1980s. Yeah. And there was a, another um, Ukrainian soldier. The Russians were advancing and they were about to cross. They needed this bridge. I think the um, the uh, I think the Russians had mined part of part of the side, if I'm not mistaken. But the Ukrainians put charges on the bridge and I guess they didn't have enough time to there. The detonator didn't work or something like that. And so a Ukrainian soldier told everybody to withdraw and he would. He would blow it up manually, obviously blowing himself up, which he did, but he took out the bridge. And so he stopped that line of Russian advance. So you got, you got people being very brave. And then you got the guy that's the former, um, I guess he's the mayor and he was the former, was it welterweight champ, boxing champion of the world? The guy's a multimillionaire and he's, he's going to fight for his country. So the Ukrainians aren't just going to lay down and, and roll over. You're, you're going to have an insurgency there.
Another thing uh, President Zelensky did is he ordered the full mobilization of the Ukrainian military for 90 days. And he also announced that all Ukrainian males age 18 to 60 were banned from leaving the country. They're all being conscripted into the military. And I was reading some accounts of a lot of Ukrainians that were fleeing to Poland. And you had Ukrainian military stopping the males from leaving and literally throwing them on a bus to take them back to conscript them. So you know what's really interesting with the timing? So there's a big thing with the whole Russian winters. This goes back to Napoleon, to World War II. Um, winters are actually one of the best times to invade because since I, it's easier to move equipment and all the tanks. Because the problem is, the real problem why it's hard is in the springtime because all the mud there makes it very, very hard. So I, that's why I think Putin probably jumped, attacked now because if you waited till the spring, it would have been too hard to move all that equipment through the mud. And transport would have been too tough, especially since they're so heavy on their tanks and their their battle armor. So I think that plays into why it's happening around now. And that's the important part. I think if Ukraine can hold out to the spring, I think it would they got this. But if, if Russia takes over and kind of wins the thing before spring, that well, I say Putin's a gambler. And, you know, what's interesting, it, interesting is Hitler was also a gambler. And he believed that the their military was going to be able to defeat Russia before the winter. And so that when they invaded, they didn't have any winter gear or winter clothes or any of that stuff. And they all got got bogged down and obviously didn't have. And then on top of that, the Russians, as they were retreating, the civilians, they went scorched earth. So they burned everything. They, you know, any crops they destroyed, anything that could be of any value to the Germans, they destroyed yeah. any buildings they they blew up or they burned down. So they were of, of no use. There was no shelter for them. And, you know, a lot of the Germans died just of exposure. It's amazing. They did the same thing with Napoleon, too. Putin's called on uh, Ukrainian military to perform a coup against Zelensky and then negotiate with Russia. What's interesting is I some of the reports I've been reading is. When you look at the protests of the people that are out in the streets in um, in Russia, and the fact that they're not happy about about this war, it's you know people have been speculating that Putin's over overplayed his hand, and the oligarchs and the rest of the mafia class that runs Russia may end up turning on Putin because most of the world is against Putin and what he's doing. Yes, yeah, so what's interesting is they're they're suppose this latest article, this is from the Daily Mail. It said that this well, but this is from Kiev's defense ministry. They said he's lost twenty eight hundred troops, eighty tanks, five hundred and sixteen armored vehicles, ten airplanes, and seven helicopters. And the Russians have made similar claims saying they've captured 160 troops destroyed 74 Ukrainian military ground facilities, downed five fighter jets and one helicopter, and destroyed 18 tanks and other armored vehicles. You know, 80 tanks, that's a lot of losses. And, you know, I, I looked at 516 armored vehicles. I looked at that and I go, man, that's those javelins. <laughs> 80,000 bucks a pop. But you can totally destroy a tank or whatever armored vehicle it is. And, you know, the bottom line is you can't sustain those kind of losses. 
And so those, those javelins, I mean, you can, if you can hide, you can fire and maneuver and just pick them off kind of like mosquitoes, if you will, or like a mosquito would bite here and there. It's like, they don't have a defense for that. Eventually they're, they, they're just going to have the Russians will have losses that they just, they can't recoup from. And then public opinion in Russia will continue to turn against it. So from a leverage perspective, every day that this goes on, that the Ukrainians don't surrender and they hold out and they keep inflicting casualties, the cost for Putin continues to go up and jeopardize his regime. You know, especially as more and more Russian troops are coming home in body bags, you know, by the thousands. I mean, because he he lost, I think, a couple hundred soldiers in his operations in Syria. And now he sustained more than that loss just in the first couple of days of the war. I think it was one one day that one day that, uh, yesterday or the day before, I think they lost like four close to 400 troops. So when you lose that many troops, I mean, when you think about Afghanistan over 20 years, we lost somewhere around 3000 troops, U.S. losses. And you're our, the Russians are already there in a couple of days. They've lost almost 3000 troops. And the people are not going to like that because it already sounds like the people don't support it. So every day that goes by, he loses more of the initiative. But these are fuel air explosives. It was the daisy cutter that we dropped. And so what happens is it's this really big bomb that's usually like for us, I think we use like a, a C-130 um, style of aircraft. And so it has a parachute that kind of pulls the bomb out of the back of the plane. It rolls out as this big giant thing. And so it floats down. And when it gets to a certain height above the ground, it explodes and releases this fuel. It's a, called a fuel air explosive. So it's some kind of a flammable liquid or gas, I guess, that gets dispersed by the initial explosion. And once that is dispersed, then a secondary charge goes off and lights the uh, the gas vapors and then that creates this big giant. It's the largest um, non nuclear bomb that exists, and so it's. I mean, they're pretty big. They're it's pretty, called yeah. a daisy cutter. You can look them up and see. And so we dropped, we dropped one in the Taliban back in uh, 2017 and killed a lot of them. That was one of the things that Trump did because he was trying to negotiate with them. And so what I had read at the time, there was a lot of uh, Pakistani ISI guys there that were working with the Taliban. We killed all of them, killed like hundreds of people with it because they were all having like a meeting. It's a pretty, pretty amazing bomb because it, because they're so big, it creates a concussion that just crushes people. So just read the first two or? Well, I was just kind of explaining it. Okay. <clears throat> That's it? Nothing else? So you want to read? Yeah, like I said, typically it's it's the most powerful non-nuclear bomb that not only we have, but they have. I think it was originally developed during Vietnam. It's pretty cool to, to watch them and how they work. <laughs> 